Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Heather Conley. In this episode of Russian Roulette, I sit down with David Owen, who served as UK Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs from 1977 until 1979, and is author of a new book, Riddle, Mystery, and Enigma, 200 Years of British-Russian Relations. I sit down with Lord Owen, and we have a pretty wide-ranging conversation. We definitely discuss the evolution of of British-Russian relations uh, from their alliance in the 19th century. He begins in 1827, but we really concentrate on uh, the very difficult relations that we are experiencing today. Let's get started. David, uh, we are absolutely delighted to to have you with us uh, and this remarkable book you've written, uh, Riddle, Mystery, and Enigma, an extraordinary book about Russian-United Kingdom relations. And and we welcome you to Russian Roulette. I want to ask you the impossible. Can you compress uh, 200 years of British-Russian history in about two minutes? What are the real highlights from this extraordinary history, uh, quite dramatic history, I must say, but help us shrink all of that good history into some short, concise thoughts. In 1827, there was a famous battle, the Battle of Navarino, right down in the Peloponnese, and it paved the way for Greek independence. The Greeks were fighting very hard, but they needed that extra commitment from Russia, France, and Britain under Admiral Codrington. And we had the three countries together, working together. So I thought I would start off with a more optimistic note that there have been times when Russia and Britain have been allies. And of course, most importantly of all, when the uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop agreement was torn up, we became allies under Churchill's leadership. And he was quite clear at the very start, this was not going to be a sort of low-key relationship. It was going to be a wholehearted alliance. And he underwrote that by committing British forces, and particularly our Navy, to the Atlantic convoy, which Russia desperately needed. And it was a fine example what he wanted that relationship to be. And it was a very close alliance, of course, made a serious and winning alliance by the United States coming into the war after Pearl Harbor. Well, so you began it with, uh, you know, forged in battle. And fast forwarding today, we see where, um, in some ways, the the tensions uh, on our eastern flank of NATO's eastern flank on the Polish Lithuanian border. Um, And some of that tension is, of course, Russian troop movements near and around Ukraine. So fast forward and bringing all that history forward of alliances forged in battle, existential, during the Second World War. What is that history today as we watch Russian troop movements near Ukraine? What does it mean today? Well, Britain has probably its worst relationships with Russia since the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact was first signed. I mean, it's as bad as that. We have this very particular case of using polonium and Novichok to kill or attempt to kill uh, Russian agents, and in the process, killing a completely innocent civilian 
in Salisbury. So things are not well between us. And I don't hide that in any way in my book. But what I do believe is the worse the situation is, the more there is a duty on countries, and particularly the Prime Minister of Britain, and in this case, of course, President Putin, to have a dialogue. Mistakes are very, very easily made in this degree of tension and misunderstanding. And there is only one, not always a solution, but only one way to handle it, and that is to minimize misunderstanding. So you don't do that unless you have a continued dialogue. So I, I have to sort of unpack this a little further. What is your interpretation of the most recent Russian troop movements near Ukraine? We saw in the spring uh, a very significant exercise. Equipment was still based there. What, what's your interpretation of, of what the Kremlin is trying to do right now? Well, they're trying to keep us guessing, and they possibly haven't yet firmly made up their mind. But the option for them to go very quickly into Ukraine for a second time is certainly there, and it's uh, compatible with the way they've handled hybrid warfare before, that they have a very serious diversion on the border of uh, Belarus with Poland. And I must say, I think Poland has handled this extremely well. This was not a case which you could hesitate. You had to put their troops on the border and to stop anybody coming over. This was no moment for repeating the failed strategies of the past of dealing with migrants on borders. This is a very provocative step undertaken nominally by Belarus, but definitely undertaken with the full support of President Putin. And certainly the the UK provided, I believe, 10 soldiers, engineers, in support of Poland. Do you sense that perhaps more strengthening of the eastern flank will be required to manage this crisis? I think it was predominantly a way of demonstrating that on this specific issue of the border, we were prepared to put in engineers, military engineers, to help with the rapid deployment of any uh, effective barriers, particularly if they were threatening uh, to be broken down. So I think it was more a demonstration of a political resolve than a purely NATO initiative. NATO are not yet involved but they may well become involved. But in the case of Britain outside the EU, it was necessary to demonstrate to Poland that we are with them wholeheartedly on this. And although there is a huge humanitarian problem, the primary problem is to stop that border being breached. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned sort of, again, the the post-Brexit global Britain, uh, certainly a, a re-strengthening of, of NATO, but also uh, the ability to uh, autonomously support a variety of issues, whether that's sanctions, whether that's sending additional forces to supplement uh, the, the Polish border situation. I, I think that's, that's an important remark. Uh, David, I want to take you back, actually, um, as you mentioned, uh, the Novichok poisoning to the Salisbury incident. Do you think that was a turning point in, you know, the most recent relationship between London and Moscow? It seems to me that Moscow was caught 
by surprise how effectively the British government was able to mobilize uh, other NATO partners and this basically a mass expulsion of, of Russian diplomats because of this use of a, a military-grade uh, chemical agent. Describe that situation and sort of put it into the context of, of, of Russian and British history. We know espionage and, and these types of attacks are, are not new. You're very right to mention this word espionage. We have to look at this as a, a background. Russia believes that it is entitled to kill any agents who have left their shores. In the case of the um, Salisbury case, that particular spy was part of an exchange of spies. So they're calling in question the whole validity of exchanges by dealing with this. The other spy was not. Now, we could spend a lot of time on this question. Let's assume we deal in a different way with deaths to spies in the sense that we deal with espionage in a different way. The real problem was using those particular weapons, if you like, biological weapons in the case of Novichok, chemical weapons in the case of polonium, to use those on the streets of another person's country is extremely damaging. Polonium was actually fixed detected because these people are traveling all around Europe in trains and buses around Europe. But secondly, apart from in London, but the um, Novichok is a peculiarly serious issue. To use biological weapons in an espionage case was very serious extension. And uh, in the case, as I said, of the woman who was killed, there is, in my view, no excuse. And I believe we should take this case further. But I also think we have to not allow this to stop dialogue. It's an advantage to being around for a long time. I mean, I've been around when relations were very, very seriously bad. I mean, I think of being, I was uh, Minister for the Navy when uh, the Hungarian invasion took place, and uh, we were never going to get involved militarily in this issue, but it was a serious deterioration of Russian relations. So I've lived through the bad and the good the falling of the Berlin War, the uh, diplomacy and uh, handling of issues by Gorbachev and then by Yeltsin. I've seen a relationship in 2003 when Putin came to Britain, was put up in Buckingham Palace and was a state visitor. But all beneath it, and I've also done business in Russia for 20 years. So this is a country which I can't claim to understand. The title, Riddle, Mystery and Enigma, was, of course, from a Churchill phrase. And he ended up saying, the one thing that does matter is Russian national interest. And never underrate it and always have it there as a case for understanding their actions. Uh, on the Salisbury attack, um, in hindsight, what, you know, did the government, by not necessarily addressing uh, Litvinenko's uh, poisoning the, and, and again endangering so many uh, British citizens in that. Uh, and of course, we've had, I think, upwards of at least 14 Russian high profile citizens, either businessmen that have fallen out from the regime, being uh, murdered. Was the government very slow to recognize this and in some ways? That this, in fact, emboldened the Kremlin to be able to reach any on anyone's soil to take care of, of their unfinished business. Is that is that fair or unfair? I think it was not 
imaginable that Russia would behave as it did. And I think when it did behave as it did, the British response was a very good one, actually. And I think that Theresa May was the prime minister at that time. I disagree with quite a few things she may have done. But on this particular area, I think we handled it well, toughly and well. And I think that the Dutch also handled the shooting down of that plane very well. They took five years to investigate it. And they didn't move until they were absolutely sure that they would have enough evidence in a court case to claim that Russia had shot down that plane. But I think for the present, I personally was very pleased that President Biden opened a dialogue right from the start with Putin. I see the preparations going on in Geneva in the traditional way for serious talks of the principles. You've got to have the ground well discussed and uh, elaborated on and a firm and clear agenda. I think that, therefore, is becoming a very, very important meeting. And I think it's similarly right for President Biden to address the problem of President Xi and China. You're absolutely right. A lot of very uh, difficult and high-profile summit meetings, whether they are virtual or are in person. Let me turn back to the business ties and your own history of, of conducting business with Russia. You know, it, the environment is incredibly difficult, not only because of important shifts in Russian law, the foreign agent law, undesirable organizations. We have a very prominent U.S. businessman, Michael Calvi, got caught in a a problem not of his own making, but he certainly uh, suffered from that. Is that even a conducive environment within Russia to be able to further those business ties? Uh, at this moment, would you advise British companies to engage? When I went into Russia for 20 years, I didn't have any politics. I did not get involved. I was chairman of UCOS International. I was chairman of a British company that traded Russian steel and was very closely involved with a steel plant in Staryoskol, which then later joined up with a, an oil deposit only very close to it, and a highly successful export business. I still believe that business is probably the best way of gradually shifting relationships with Russia, and therefore I would be very against suddenly telling all business to stop. And I think, therefore, we should keep open doors, even if we know they're rather creaky doors and a bit rotten doors. And there is corruption. And certainly, it's very hard to do business in Russia without getting associated with President Putin and his wider uh, military and uh, political strategy. Very difficult indeed. And I think we should understand that. But that doesn't mean we should stop it. You know, we kept on doing business all through the Cold War. We had some quite successful companies in this country, one very big wood importer that maintained relationships. Many times people tried to have a go at them for having this relationship. I always defended it. I said, keep it. Stay in touch. Keep involved. And therefore, I do not think that closing economic doors, unless you have to, uh, is a sensible we need friends. We need people we work with. We need people who are not connected with politics at all. They may be a bit corrupt, incidentally, maybe a lot more than a bit corrupt. Corruption was a tragedy of the latter years of Yeltsin. And I sometimes feel we never gave Yeltsin enough economic support. Were you affiliated with Yukos during the Khodorkovsky affair? I was appointed by Khodorkovsky to be chairman of Yukos International. 
within a few months of the, uh, this happening, I was in Buckingham Palace at a time when uh, Putin was there, and a big, tall Russian came across the room, was standing with my wife. He said, are you Lord Owen? And I said, yes. He put his finger on my chest, and he said, you tell Khodorkovsky to stay out of politics. I did, and I told him what this would happen, and within a few months, he was in prison. The honest answer is you can't really pursue politics and business in Russia. You're best to stay as clean as you can away from the politicians and as more as possible related to business. It was a tragedy. Yukos was a brilliant company. Khodorkovsky was colorblind, if you like. He, could, he would appoint anyone. If they were a good driller, a good uh, a geologist, something, they could get into Yukos, Italian, British, French, didn't matter. I, it's, there is others, it's happened. But um, it's Khodorkovsky himself should have stayed out of politics and he should not have tried to be the head of UCOS and run for president. These are incompatible roles. And we've got to be a little clearer about this in uh, the politics of Russia. If you want to help as a business person, yes, we'll do it, but not if you are involved in politics. But then you know how difficult it is not to be involved in politics. That's why I gave up in 2015. I, I, after Ukraine, I wasn't going to stay in Russia because I could no longer remain out of politics. I needed to go back into politics. Well, yes, I mean, I, I have to say that it's, it's, it's also the politics of the West and the values that, that we represent. And while I think we all uh, appreciate dialogue and, and, and business and people-to-people -people ties are very important, particularly as, as government-to-government relations are very tough. You've had a Russian mafia in uh, business in America for centuries, decades, certainly. And uh, you don't do a lot about it. Uh, so I think that we all of us have to consider the question, is it better to be in contact with people, even if they're corrupt, or is it better to have no contract? Is it better to keep business going and recognize it will be very hard to keep it out of any form of corruption or remain pure on the sidelines? Well, I'm used to the, uh, the fighting role of a democratic politician, and so I'm not averse to fighting in undemocratic countries and against corruption. It's a very hard route, a very hard route. I think definitely corruption lives in all of our societies. The UK and members of parliament are facing that right now. Certainly in the United States, we are addressing our own challenges. So I guess we have to, to we have to lead by example and, and begin at home. Let me transition, if I can, to sort of your views of, of political transition within Russia today with changes to the Russian constitution last year and, of course, um, elections in September. Sort of speculation uh, completely. But uh, how do you see Russia's political transition evolving over time? Well, where is Putin going is really the root behind that. And uh, it's very interesting how Yeltsin first and now Putin spends a lot of his time with the church. So there's a lovely picture of Putin with a candle standing in the cathedral in Moscow, the cathedral that was raised to the ground by Stalin, built up by Yeltsin and then uh, Putin. Where is Putin heading? Uh, it's very hard to know, but you must keep a dialogue. And Henry Kissinger is a very good example. He has had a dialogue with Putin now for well over 20 years, and he has stayed in touch, kept even amongst uh, 
people who he's talking to and knows like myself, he won't break his confidence of Putin. But you know that he is talking at a very serious level for a long time. We've got to develop those relationships. And remember, you know, Russia is European in every sense. Go to the ballet there, go to the music, go to their culture, playwrights, writing. There is something fascinating about Russia. Once you get gripped by it, and I openly admit I am gripped by it, you want to try and overcome these problems. We're unfortunately in a bad place at the moment. Absolutely. I, I was very glad that uh, in, in the book you really do heavily reference this uh, the involving the role of the R- Russian Orthodox Church, um, Russian traditionalism, uh, just uh, unfair advertising. Uh, we're completing a, a major research project that tries to understand the instrumentalization of the of traditional values of, of the church in, in Russian foreign and security policy. It's a very interesting subject matter, and I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned it in the book for sure. Well, that's why I started off with Greece, after all, an Orthodox country. And when I was dealing with uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina and the whole of that situation, you couldn't avoid the religious conflicts and the difficulties. And I try in the center of the book really deal with the Ottoman Empire and how, I mean, the British walked away from the greatest naval victory they've ever had and apologized to the Ottoman Empire. Unbelievable behavior. But... uh, we got lots of things wrong in the way we handled the Ottoman Empire. So you can learn from history and you can learn from the mistakes we've made and we must try to do that. And I hope perhaps in a little small way this book will, because it did such a vast scope and also set into hand the triumphs that we've had. You know, I mean, NATO was never just a military organization. It was also an ideological battle, the human rights battle that we fought alongside military strength. And that broke through the Berlin Wall. Let's be under no illusion. There are many heroes of the Berlin Wall. It was uh, Willy Brandt, a great name in the history of détente. And many others, Reagan and Thatcher at their time, did well. But there were many people way before that, and still are, who are trying to keep open a dialogue. And to them will have to handle this issue long since I'll be under the salt by then. I hope they'll understand the lesson of history because there is a, a lot to learn from the history of relationships with Russia. And America, you know, contribution has been great, really. I mean, nobody can forget what you've done and kept troops in Europe all these years. I always think Truman was the bravest of them all. Told you taking the boys home, and then a year later, had to them they had to stay. No politician likes doing that, but he was right. Well, ironically, in some ways, that's what we did in 2014. We had just removed most of our combat brigade teams, and um, after uh, the illegal annexation of Crimea, we returned a lot of those forces back into to Europe. But I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's the political values. It is the courage that is also part of that important story. Are you surprised, David, at the state of repression within Russia today? We've certainly seen a, a fairly dramatic turn. I mentioned the foreign agent, the undesirable uh, organizations. There's really been a crackdown, certainly since we didn't even talk about the Novichok poisoning of Alexei Navalny, and, and really not allowing any even 
non-systemic opposition to even be part of the conversation. Does, are you surprised by what you're seeing internally to Russia today? Well, there have always been these people in Russia who are never going to probably be leaders of Russia, but who have been voices of dissent. I mean, Zakharov is, in my time, was really one of the great voices of dissent. And now Navalny has made us laugh at Putin, which I'm sure absolutely irritates him beyond measure. And when we had all these great pictures of this mansion house and its underground ice hockey, and then uh, putting um, uh, Novichok on his pants, there, there was a, a wonderful way of putting it. And millions of people have watched those uh, TV, and quite a lot of them in Russia too. So there are different ways of handling it. And I think Navalny has found a way of getting under their skin. He's a brave man, and many of the people in the past, the dissidents in Russia, have been very brave and risked their lives. There was a time when Putin was very interested and committed to having popular support. And broadly speaking, he's had it for most of the time he's president. He's lost it now. And has he lost it forever? Or is he able to see where he's made a mistake in his own terms? And is he searching for a role as a new Tsar away from politics, just with the army, with the military? I mean, he's restored the faith and confidence of the military and equipped them extremely well. And this is the thing we have to remember. By the time we reached Yeltsin's period, the Soviet military was a thing of the past. And they were also very, very inefficient and had been starved of resources. What Putin did was bring back confidence and a sense of their historic role to the armed forces. And that's why, you know, his poll rating for invading Ukraine went up to over 80%. But they don't see it as invading Ukraine in Russian terms. It's taking back Ukraine into Russia. And we have to take account of these sort of feelings. And when we deal with things like Kosovo, we have to take account of the fact that many people, countries in the world have never recognized NATO's action in Kosovo. I happen to think it was essential to do it. But uh, you can't change boundaries just because you use force. You have to get international agreement to it. And there's no international agreement on Kosovo boundaries at this moment, as we speak, not even within the EU. So for goodness sake, get round the table and put on the agenda all those boundary issues in Europe you dissent from if you're Russia or we dissent from if we're NATO and discuss them and discuss them. In the, there's a mechanism for it, the CSCE, but progress will be made between Biden and Putin. That's the reality at the moment. So I, I think your view represents, I think, this, this important debate, and it's a difficult debate. Um, I have the exact opposite view, that Ukraine is a sovereign country. Russia recognized that sovereignty in 1991. Uh, and, so and we underwrote the fact they gave up nuclear weapons, and we, Britain, signed guarantee of their boundaries and did nothing when this happened. Right. The Budapest Memorandum? Absolutely. So we either believe in those values and we have to put, uh, you know, give our support for Ukraine to be able to defend its territory. That is not sending NATO forces, but that's giving Ukraine the tools. Or we accept Russia's uh, belief that these are not sovereign territories. They are under their sphere of, of influence. And that dialogue to me, Dialogue is absolutely important, but we cannot dialogue our way through 
uh, uncertainty over sovereignty and territorial integrity. And while I do appreciate Kosovo has a, a very difficult uh, procedure, the, the United Kingdom has recognized it, the United States has recognized it, although we've had dramatic setbacks. So I, I think on that one, we will have to uh, agree to, to disagree. But it speaks to the, the argument, and just to come back to the earlier point. I'm not sorry. sure we do disagree. There was a very strong case for us resisting what happened uh, by degrees in Ukraine. But that case was slightly weakened uh, by the history and by the uh, Russian-speaking element and by the way that the president elected was displaced. And a lot of the politics around the so-called EU-Ukraine agreement, this was a more complicated issue than many people give it credit for. It was not outright simple aggression. It, was, it had a long history buildup. But the present situation is quite different. Russia are already in the Ukraine for most of the Russian-speaking parts of the Ukraine. A military action now would be an attack on people who have made it completely clear that they are Ukrainian, that they are sovereign Ukrainian territory, different political situation, and a different area of magnitude. And we need to be clear about it. France has said only just recently they will uh, support Ukraine militarily. It's uh, a big step for NATO to do it, but NATO countries do not have to act outside NATO. We don't have to all act together. Uh, and it's certainly open to Britain to decide that an attack on the Ukraine in current circumstances would raise different issues. The diplomacy has been bloody awful too. Sorry to use that language, but I mean, Minsk uh, was not a serious dialogue. I mean, at first it was only France and Germany. Uh, and they did make no progress at all. They did a great harm to the concept of solving disputes by negotiations in that narrow framework of this. So this time we must see this as a much more serious challenge. This is a much, much greater attack on NATO and all it stands for if there is a military incursion into Ukraine in present circumstances. Well, and I think that is why you're seeing the Biden administration I would argue, go to extraordinary public statements and public lengths to raise the alarm that that, in fact, uh, could be the case. And as you noted, the Biden administration is certainly trying to find a, a way forward with Russia to create a stable, predictable relationship, particularly in strategic t stability, arms control. Uh, but it's, you know, should Russia well, take... Biden Sorry. and uh, Putin a chance. And I think these issues have got to be very firmly on the table. And Biden's got to have quite plainly. There's got to be a change of direction. There's got to be a serious international negotiation. And he's ready to discuss all issues. But he's not ready to have the issue preempted by another piece of military in, intrusion. And I think it needs to be a very blunt and statement. So I, I'm very pleased with Biden for doing it. And I, it was courageous. And I like the way it's been approached seriously with preparation. It's a very important meeting, a very important meeting. Right, but uh, the Kremlin jeopardizes all of that um, should there be another military uh, invasion into Ukraine. I think the, the public outcry would be too great. Massive. It would be a massive error on, from Russia's yes. part. Yes. And it would be a massive implications. This is, we're no longer cheating. This is quite different from what happened last time. And... Uh, Putin, he must know that. For the, that reason, I think 
he will not do it until he has a chance to gauge Russia's national interest against American national interest. Well, uh, again, I think that's part of the desire to have that parity with the United States. And, and I agree with you, the, the Normandy format, the Minsk process, uh, not unlike the Geneva process for Abkhazia and South Ossetia, uh, 5 plus 2 for uh, Transnistria, even Nagorno-Karabakh, that had to be solved by my military means. So these diplomatic processes are over a quarter of a century old, many of them, and they're still uh, not producing results. I'm not asking for America to feel alone on this question and coming in to help the Europeans. You face this massive problem now with China, and we've ignored it for too long. I'm appalled what has happened in Hong Kong, that have broken up and torn up a treaty. And I've been very pleased that we are now militarily prepared to help America, Britain, in uh, your dealing with the whole question of China. And I think that it's got to come across to the American people that you have got firm European allies in dealing with China. In the past, it's been just thinking of America helping us in Europe. Now we have something to put into the pool. And that's why I personally think the time is coming when NATO needs a China policy, but perhaps more important, we think of a North Atlantic Treaty in terms now of a North American Treaty, and that we are global. We went tentatively into this in Iraq, and we went tentatively into this in Afghanistan with arguable results. But nobody can face China on their own, and the United States should not be expected to do. And we in Europe need to be giving back something to the NATO alliance, which came to our rescue from 1946 onwards. Now, I do believe it's very important. I'm married to an American, of course, so I don't think you really know that, but uh, she's been here a long time. But um, And I have American relatives and friends, and I am utterly clear on this. We must think globally about China. This, don't let's just think of this as Asia. This is a very big global challenge, and we in Europe must be with you as you've been with us. Uh, well, uh, thank you. And I, I think the final question I'll ask is uh, how the relationship between Russia and China will evolve. Uh, we're seeing increasing alignment economically in the Arctic, uh, military exercises, uh, both jointly in the Sea of Japan, as well as uh, how do you think that relationship will evolve very quickly? Russia will never bow the knee to China any more than they will to France or Britain or Europe. And that is where this book may have some help to people. In a shortish book, it deals with 200 years of history. During that time, Russia has never deviated. Churchill was right on this issue of the national interest. That's how you have to assess Russia. They will assess it in the national interest. Of course, they'll improve relations and they'll deal with it. But you also have to remember they have the longest border between any two countries. And that was a disputed border. Over four years, patient negotiations, that border became an agreed border, and they divided up rivers and divided up different things. So there is, they have a basis for improving their relationship, and economically too. And therefore, we shouldn't do anything to push Russia into Chinese arms. And it's another reason for getting a better relationship with Russia here in Europe. They will form that relationship. But I can only tell you, when I used to be in the oil fields in Siberia, 
And the further nearer you got to Vladivostok, the more Russians would speak openly about their feelings about China. So it's not simple. And whatever Putin may say, whatever they may be saying the Kremlin at a particular time, the Russians are highly suspicious of China and have been for years. So they are suspicious of everybody. So we've got to understand the Russians have been alone and in uh, occasional alliances and everything like that. But their fundamental thing is what? makes sense for Russia. We must not push them into the arms of China. Well, I think some of their actions, unfortunately, are, are compelling us uh, to take those steps, and unfortunately. What a tour de force. Thank you, Lord Owen, um, and, and for your book and for your thoughts and for the spirited conversation that we just had across many subjects. Uh, thank you again for joining us. A real pleasure. Thank you. That's it for our show today. Please check the show notes for links to Lord Owen's new book. For those of you who haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and leaving us a rating and review. If you're not an iTunes user, you can stream the podcast on Spotify. And finally, just a special word of thanks for everyone who worked so hard to make this podcast happen, including our fabulous producer, program manager, Roxana Gabadulina, and the entire CSIS External Relations and iLab team. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.